Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by senior senior editors Sue Sutter and Brenda Sandberg and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is July 22nd, 2022. We've got several interesting FDA-related stories to take our minds off the sweltering heat that is gripping most of the U.S. First up is clinical trial diversity, an issue that continues to make headlines. Brenda, you wrote about a new project that an industry group is helping fund that could push these efforts forward. Yes, um, there's been talk about clinical trial diversity for years, and particularly um, during the the pandemic, uh, companies have been really um, putting a focus on this. And pharma, um, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, they um, have uh, issued a 10 million grant for an 18 month pilot program. Um, to it's a, like a learning phase of the initiative, and um, there are three universities that are going to be uh, setting up a network of community-based trial sites, and, and those universities are the Yale School of Medicine, Morehouse School of Medicine, and Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and um, th- they're providing training and technical support and mentorship to these sites that will, once they're established, be accessible to pharmaceutical companies for their trials, for NIH-sponsored trials, uh, academic um, researchers. And um, it's expected that the trial sites will pick trials that are relevant to their community. Um, For example, the, the the three universities, they held a press briefing this week announcing this initiative, and, and they noted that you know uh, communities of color are, are, have burdens more with diseases like diabetes and cardiovascular disease and asthma. So trials that would um, be in areas where the community is most affected would be natural uh, choice for the centers to pick to focus on. Um, there have been other networks um, but they tend to be local and uh, where, you know, like a, a university will partner with uh, uh, partners in the community, like Yale has about 300 community-based sites in its area, and Morehouse has a partnership with physicians in its community. Um, but this is this is national, and it's the, the goal is to go outside traditional locations where they do trials and um, have a sustainable network. So... It's just not right now uh, a sponsor will come in and do a study and then leave and then the site, you know, doesn't isn't ready for the next one. So the, the idea is to establish uh, a infrastructure in the site that that can continue um, and, and take uh, a steady stream of, of, of studies. And they're also working in this pilot phase with community leaders to get the message out to the community about the value of trials. Um, so this is, uh, it seems like a very tangible thing that's happening after years of talking about how to go about, it, it, you know, actually having diversity in trials. And Pharma said they've been working on this project for a couple of years. Their, their board challenged um, the association to do more. And uh, this, the idea for this um, it could be seen at their their meeting last year. Pharma had a meeting last year on partnering to advance clinical trial diversity, and it, I, I happened to cover it, fortunately. And um, there was a very interesting panel about you know her, overcoming hurdles in establishing a network of trials. 
focused on diversity. And, and, and so this is uh, very interesting to see something very tangible um, happen in this area. Yeah, yes. I think it's a great start. I mean, Janet Woodcock has been talking for years about the need to set up a community-based trial infrastructure. And, um, you know, this seems like a good step in that direction. Um, hopefully it will it will take off and it will expand. But I think it's a good way of, of trying to establish this sort of system um, in communities of color. I was just going to say that I don't know if I mentioned this, but they're the initial they're picking ten initial sites in the southeast and southwest to start with. Yeah, this this reminds me of a of a project that Pharma was involved in all the way back in 2014, where they were they worked with the National Minority Quality Forum to, I, I believe it was I don't know if it was more than a website or not, but it was a um, they, they kind of um, initiated this campaign called I'm In, which was intended to help recruit, um, you know, recruit patients and physicians interested in clinical trials in minority communities, too. So, it, you know, it, it's not like pharma hasn't really been working on this or, you know, tried different things, you know, as well, um, you know, to try and, you know, get, get at this issue. But, it, you know, again, it's interesting that it's also interesting, I think, that they're, that it's industry that's trying to take the next step here and not necessarily someone like, you know, NIH or, you know, HHS or, you know, even, I mean, I don't know, it's not really FDA's, you know, kind of, um, um, re, you know, remit, so to speak. But uh, it's it's a little interesting that the that industry is, is, is kind of getting the ball rolling. I was just going to say there's a lot of pressure on industry to do this, um, to, to, to actually have uh, diversity in clinical trials. And of course, you know, the um, FDA came out with guidance about how to do this and like advocating or telling sponsors that they should send an action plan for how they're going to do this at, at the stages of development by like the um, you phase three trial. And, and then it's in the, the house user fee bill as similar provision with regard to having an action plan. Yeah, I mean, they're on the cusp of facing regulatory um, repercussions. You know, if if they can't increase the right. diversity of clinical trials, I mean, the FDA's Cancer Center has said, you know, this is what we expect. Um, uh, you know, as you say, Brenda, there's legislation, some of the user fee legislation is, is um, making a stand on these issues. So I think, you know, it's not just pharma doing this because it's the right thing to do. It's pharma doing it because this is the direction that their companies need to go in. Right. Yeah, I think uh, um, the industry has both, uh, you know, moral and uh, regulatory senses to uh, do this. And it's a very interesting uh, dilemma for them that if they can't do it, they're going to be made to do it. That's kind of, I think, uh, um, you know, that the feds would prefer that, uh, um uh, you know, sponsors got their acts together and sort of kind of uh, figured it out on their own. But uh, if uh, the voluntary efforts don't uh, uh, work, it does seem like there's sort of building momentum to sort of to uh, impose some sort of requirement in terms of sort of kind of what the, uh, um, you know, enrollment uh, numbers look like. So, uh, um, you know, the, to the extent that uh, um, uh, pharma can do it on their own, it'll be, uh, it'll be much better for them. The, the, the jaded person in me also <laughs> thinks that, you know, or, you know, wonders if if this is uh, you know kind of a way they they have like 
industry has kind of selfish reasons to do it too because if if the, if they can if this works then they can reduce the cost of recruitment the cost of clinical trials and 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 all the you know the research and and so forth too because again like you like you said Brenda and and Sue you don't have to, when these people you know you go you go into a site you put everything together and then you pick up and leave and you have to start over from scratch well if you have all these sites ready to go and there's more of them and they don't you don't have to put all this extra work into getting them getting them up and running every single time that is a you know it's a time saver it's a it's a cost saver and you know all, it down the you know it affects bottom lines mm-hmm. so it it's a, it's an interesting issue you know one we'll have to watch and see how uh, how well uh, you know how long it takes to get set up how long how well the uh, how how popular these sites are with some of the new clinical trials but um, that are coming out but it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see to see how you know if this can be a model for, uh, you know, for things going forward. Next up, we're going to stay with Brenda, who's also our resident legal expert. You wrote this week about some potential changes to the uh, the PTO's patent trial and appeal board. Right. Uh, PTO issued a notice. They're seeking public comment on the process that, that for the PTO director to review decisions of the patent trial and appeal board. And um, this follows from the Supreme Court's decision last year in United States versus Arthrex. And the court said that the PTAB's administrative administrative judges weren't constitutionally appointed and their decisions weren't subject to being reviewed by any any officer who had been appointed by the president. So the court said to fix this issue, the court um, the court said the PTO director has the discretion to review any of the board's decisions. Um, so the PTO set up an interim process, and the notice is to get a comments from as they go about the process of uh, coming up with a final procedure for director review. Um, now this issue really hasn't impacted pharma really that so far that much. The director's granted five requests for review of a PTAP decision so far, and none of, none of them are in the pharmaceutical sector. But the questions that are posed in the Federal Register notice uh, that, 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 that the office wants comments on suggest that there could be changes that might lead to a process that impacts pharma more. For instance, um, right now, the the review only pertains to final written decisions um, of of um, of the, of the PTAB, and it um, and it and it doesn't. So it doesn't address. But they asked about whether it should be extended beyond that to reviewing of decisions on whether to institute a review. See, um, parties, any third party can submit a petition to. Um, PTAB and request that challenging a a patent claim and and asking the the board to review it. And then the board has like six months to decide whether or not to institute. So if the the director gets involved in uh, reviewing decisions not to institute, that could be, um, that could be uh, of of note for, for industry. And also ask whether third parties can request a director review. Now only the parties in the proceeding can do so. So that also might might impact pharma. Um, so th- this this 
focus on director review of PTAB decisions is one issue in PTAB that's being looked at. Congress really has focused on PTAB and they came, a, a bipartisan group of senators introduced a Patent Trial and Appeal Board Reform Act um, recently and um, and that has a more in, uh, impactful provision that says that the director um, would not be able to, as the director can now, decline to institute a, a proceeding if there's parallel district court litigation going on. And, and for over 80% of cases, there is parallel district litigation going on. So um, th that's, um, if, if this legislation goes anywhere, if it ever were to be enacted, that, that provision <clears throat> would be um, impactful for the whole procedures of the PTAB. So could we see this used more often you know, if, you know, whether it's director review or, you know, or PTAB in general, I mean, if, if this system kind of gets implemented, you know, after the comment period and everything else? I don't think it will have any impact on P the PTAB procedures being used. I mean, they are like, since the American, since the PTAB was established and the proceedings established under the American Invents Act of 2011, it's just become, it's fundamentally changed patent litigation because, um, this is another venue to go about challenging a patent and um, parties are using both both the courts and the PTAB to, to, to challenge patents and, and that that won't change. So Brenda, I know there's only been a few of these uh, cases, but uh, any sense of sort of kind of what uh, someone would have to say to get the um, the director to, uh, you know, successfully uh, um, you know, see the see the PTAB decision uh, differently if you wanted to sort of kind of to uh, to go to the uh, the director on these uh, these kind of issues. That's a that's a great question, Matt, and I don't unfortunately have an answer to that. I since since they weren't in fact impacting farm, I didn't really delve into like the, what the what the director had said in her reviews. But that's a, a really good question. Yeah, we always would like to know what the magic word is. I think to to kind of trigger some of this stuff. But this is another interesting issue that um, to watch. I know there's there'll be a lot of people waiting for the final rule to be issued, uh, you know, once it's uh, once it's ready. Finally, today we're going to look at the opioid epidemic and another aspect of the FDA's ongoing response. The FDA announced this week that Marta Sokolowska has been promoted to deputy director for substance use and behavioral health at CEDAR, the fifth deputy director in the center. She is going to be in charge of the agency response to the crisis, as well as advise the commissioner and others on proposed legislation and regulations. The promotion is expected to provide some more visibility for the opioid response and should help the intra and interagency response to the crisis. This move also was made in the wake of criticism by members of Congress and others that the FDA opioid campaign has been inadequate. And I'm, you know, for you all here, I'm curious if you think this added visibility will help kind of assuage those concerns? I mean, certainly there's a uh, um, branch of FDA critics that sort of kind of uh, for which nothing will be good enough. And, uh, um, you know, the opioid response is only a uh, um, an emblem of their sort of kind of their wider uh, um, uh, over coziness with uh, with industry. So even if they uh, perfectly adjust their uh, their opioid policy, uh, you know, uh, um, everything else will be uh, um, uh, problematic still. Um, there are obviously other sort of folks uh, you can see, uh, um, you know, Joe Manchin or uh, um, uh, 
you know, uh, others who are sort of from communities that are hard hit by opioids who sort of feel particularly concerned about this. And, uh, you know, if this elevation actually leads to, you know, a shift in policy or approval procedure that, uh, um, you know, uh, helps reduce the epidemic, then it's a, um, a, a, a very good thing that uh, could, could mollify those particular critics. I'm going to uh, stop talking and uh, uh, have something to drink. <laughs> We have seen promote you know, promotions like if, as we like to call them within the FDA actually uh, you know work work out pretty well. I mean the the Office of Generic Drugs got a promotion to super office status, which is another industry term that we love to use uh, within Cedar uh, geez, several years ago now, almost almost ten years ago, and um, that was as much an indication of the importance of generic drugs in the U.S. as much as um, you know the fact that the that that office was was growing you know dramatically in size so you know maybe just you know having having this at the level that it is um you know just kind of you know maybe you just need to provide some of that you know just make that effort to uh you know to to show the importance of it and uh you know and it uh you know it, it doesn't it may not necessarily change operations you know necessarily but uh you know, at least you at least you have a public face on it. That's a great point, Derek. To the extent that sort of kind of this, uh, um, you know, uh, um, you know, change of the organizational chart means that uh, you know someone's uh, raising those issues in the room where it happens. Uh, um, it could uh, um, it could make it a uh, you know a much bigger deal for uh, um, for everyone uh, for everyone involved. I appreciate the Hamilton reference there. Um, <clears throat> the uh, yeah, and with FDA having so many things going on across, I mean, really across the entire agency. I mean, you have, you've got mandatory prescriber education, blister packing. I, you know, still kind of hanging out there. You have OTC naloxone, which is a different area, you know, than than the prescription side. You've got, you know, and and in you have benzodiazepine abuse issues, which is you know we're kind of, we're almost forgetting about because it's so such a huge focus on opioids with this. That you know that you know there's so much so many things that are kind of disparate that maybe they, you know that this person will kind of you know you know be the point person on so it it you know this it's going to be uh, it hopefully will bring some more attention to kind of the things that FDA is doing and and you know help kind of better uh, you know package all of it um, you know going forward. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sue Sutter, Brenda Sandberg, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.